Welcome to the grand finale of Tom's Talmudish, a Masechet Purim for the year 5781. Hopefully, next year, as we'll be studying this Gemara, we will be preparing for Purim in the Beis HaMikdash. But in the meanwhile, let us study about the salvation and the miraculous deliverance of yesteryear. Today's final episode of Tom's Talmud Tishampurim is lovingly dedicated to the Aliyah Sanashama of Pinchas ben David HaKoyen as his Shleshim approaches. May his Neshama have an Aliyah. May he be a Melitzyosha, a good better, an intercessor for his children, grandchildren, and their children. The moment of truth now arrives. If this was a movie, <laughs> the most dramatic music would be piped in at this point. Let me remind you about the circumstances that immediately precede this very dramatic moment. Because only by understanding where the queen is coming from will you be able to properly understand where she stands now. Twice, twice, in the last page, we have learned that Esther did not simply don royal raiments, but rather she was cloaked in malchut, which is a euphemism for the shechina, for the Divine Presence, for higher consciousness, spiritual intuition, or prophecy. Clearly, it only happened by Yom HaShlishi. It only happened on that third day. The Tosfos, as we learned in a previous episode, emphasizes the merits of the past, of Jewish history, what led to the notion of Esther's being robed in this form of higher consciousness, in what's called Ruach HaKodesh. Rabbeinu Shlomo Alkabatz, in his incredible commentary on the Megillah known as Manot HaLevi, gives us some much-needed depth and background, not only to the notion of her being robed in Ruach HaKodesh, but why it is that suddenly everything grinds to a halt. Listen carefully 
to what the Alkabats in Manot HaLevi says. Vayihi bayom ha-shlishi, the verse that we've quoted twice, precedes the words vatilbash ester malchot ester, now donned the raiments of Ruach HaKodesh, with the word Bayom HaShlishi, says the Alkabats, this was the third day of the Tanit, it was the third day of the fast decreed by Esther. The Holy Spirit descended or cloaked her on this third day as a reward for the positive characteristics, for the uplifting traits exhibited by the righteous Esther HaMalka. She knew how to keep a secret. It's not easy to keep a secret. Especially when everybody is knocking on the door and wants the answer, including the king. Because Esther was a chassid. Mordechai said, don't tell. So she didn't. And because Esther was a chassid and listened to what Mordechai said, and because she didn't tell, lo gilta esmoladta, she did not reveal her birth origins, the etama and her nation, and because she followed the words of Mordechai, her husband, the Rebbe, because she listened to the Rebbe, because she followed the instructions of Mordechai, although they didn't make sense to her. And we don't know of her being prophetically inclined prior to this moment. But her chasidus, her devotion, her commitment, her obedience, her dutiful observance of Mordechai's words, despite the most incredible challenge that she faced, is what opened the door to prophetic intuition. Lochain, says the Alkabats, this is the very reason Heir Hashem Hachama. The Alkabat says that the Shechina that she experienced was not simply a higher consciousness. She radiated like the sun itself. Now, sometimes when a woman looks exceptionally beautiful, we could say she's radiant. Esther was radiant, a radiance that was otherworldly. After all, she had fasted for three days, and whilst it might be good for a diet, although we know Esther was on a diet of seeds anyway, and doesn't, she didn't have an extra pound or ounce to speak of, but after fasting three days, if anything, she would look emaciated. And fasting for three days might help you look weight, but it doesn't put color into your face and it doesn't give you a sense of animated, animated vivaciousness. And yet Esther at this point is radiant because she is crowned with a light, with a charisma, with an energy that is otherworldly. And why does it come by Yom HaShlishi? Was Esther not a chassid before? Did Esther not follow the instructions of Mordechai? Why did it come on the third day? The Alkabat says something incredible. He says, Hashem will not delay the agony and anxiety more than three days. The righteous will be answered within three days. 
And so, Kishaholcha, when Esther went, Halcha Hashchina Lefaneha. The Shchina went before her. Now, it is extremely telling and most compelling that nowhere does the Megillah actually say she went. It's the third day. Vatilbash Esther Malchot. Esther is robed in royalty. The next thing we hear of, Vata'amod, she stops. Where does she stop? Not at the destination. Vata'amod, she stands. Everything grinds to a halt. Bechatsar, Beit Hamelach, Hapnimit. In the courtyard of the king, the inner royal courtyard, which is Nochach Beit HaMelech, just outside of the actual area, the precinct or the chamber of the king himself, the actual throne room. So it's the hallway just before the actual throne room. Zagdi Gemara says the Gemara page and that's Mesechet Megillah page fifteen B Daftes Vav Amud Beis. We're now moving into the smack in the middle of the page. The Gemara says, Vata Amod bechatzar Beit Hamelach Apnimit. And the Gemara implicitly understands something isn't right. In the words of the Maharsha. It doesn't say, Vatavo Vata'amod. And she came, she arrived, and then stopped. Now, it doesn't say, Vatelchi, that she went either. But then again, it's understood that she, that's where she was going. Vatilbash Esther Malchus. And it doesn't have to say that she went. We only hear of the details that have a message for us. By Yom Shlishi, very important messaging. We got that in the Megillah. She robed herself in royalty. Very, very powerful ideas being conveyed. That says in the Megillah. She went? Doesn't say. What Was it a walk? Did she travel in a carriage? What color were the horses? How long did it take for the horseman to come? Was she carried in a gilded chair? <laughs> did she fly? It's not relevant. It's, that's not of lasting meaning. So the Megillah doesn't talk about it. It also doesn't talk about her shoes. Did she wear flats? Or was she wearing high heels? I, I don't know. It's not relevant. What's relevant is she was dressed in resplendent royalty, which means the crown, which means the chain of office, as we'll soon hear. And it means, of course, the Shekhinah. And she's radiant. The next thing we hear about is Vatamod. So, so, so the Marshal says, doesn't say Vatavo Vatamod, it says Vatamod. Why does it say only Vatamod? Vatamod means she stopped. So what does this mean? Omer Rebbe Levi, so Rebbe Levi said, Kevon Shehigia Lebeit HaTzlomim, when she reached what was referred to as the house of idols, the chamber of idols. Nistalko The divine presence that gave her the courage suddenly disappeared. Esther doesn't feel radiant anymore. She doesn't feel the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu going before and accompanying her. 
Jerusalem, we have a problem. The only way Esther was actually buoyed or given the confidence to go forward was because on that third day, she was robed in Ruach HaKodesh. And suddenly, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is gone. The Maharsha explains the word Vata'amod as such. In the scripture, the word Vata'amod can mean, and she stopped, or stood in one place. But when you're speaking more in a dynamic fashion, not about a particular stroll or walk, but you have like, I would say, a description of a scenario, of a situation, the word Vata'amod means it seized. Where do we see this? Yehuda, the brother who essentially led his siblings, who was most respected, although he was not the oldest. He was number four of Leah's children, but he commanded the respect of his siblings. Yehuda could have stopped the sale of Yosef, could have saved Yosef. But instead, he elected to sell him. And when the brothers came home, and when they saw the grief that had been thrust upon Yaakov, they blamed it on Yehuda. They said, we looked up to you for a reason. You were, it seemed, more insightful, more calm and collected, more focused. You have leadership qualities. We looked up to you. Had you told us, knock it off, bring Yosef home, we would have listened to you. It's all your fault now. Blamed by his brothers, Yehuda could find no peace at home. And the Torah tells us that he actually left the home of Yaakov and he disappeared for a good period of time. And a lot of funny things happened during that period of time. Yehuda marries, he has three children. Eventually, his children, two of his children marry. It's not pretty. He buries the sons one after the other because of their immoral behavior. And then he gets involved in a, a tryst of epic proportion, which is beyond the purview of this class about Queen Esther. Why am I even mentioning Yehuda? Yehuda, who married the woman of a business associate has three children. And then she stops giving birth. How do we know she stops giving birth? It says, The word means like false hopes. Stop giving birth. She never has children after that. That's not seen as a stop. That's the end. The end of her childbearing years conclude with the birth of the third son, Shelah. Now let's go back to Yehuda's mother. Yehuda's mother, Leah, was not the first choice of marriage for Yaakov. In fact, it wasn't his choice at all. Yaakov wanted to marry Rachel. If you want to use crass terminology, she was the woman he loved. If you want to use spiritual terminology, 
and it's not misplaced. Rachel was the true soulmate of Yaakov. The perfect perfection of who Yaakov could be. But circumstances turned otherwise. With guile and deceit and treachery, Lavan marries Leah to Yaakov, but never tells Yaakov, until it's too late. Yaakov has made a promise to Rachel, which he must honor. He's legally bound to honor, and so he marries Rachel. And Leah is in a very, very difficult position. She's stuck in a marriage where she's not really appreciated. She's almost coming between two people who love each other very much and see in each other a picture of their own perfection. And Hashem, it says, opens the womb of Leah, and although Leah doesn't have the privilege of that special relationship, Leah provides children to our father Yaakov. And as the mother of his children, Leah becomes endeared to her husband, to Yaakov. This is very far from a perfect situation. The Torah does not endorse or encourage multiple marriages, meaning to have multiple wives. It was a circumstances, a result of circumstances. The Torah permits, but does not encourage this. And in the end, our sages outlawed it altogether, at least in the Ashkenazic world. But going back to the actual story, Leah stops having children after Yehud is born. But it's not the end of her career. She stops, but later has more children. After she gives birth to Yehuda, Rachel asks Yaakov to marry her maidservant, whose name is Bila. And Rachel seeks to emulate the actions of her grandmother, of Yaakov's grandmother, Sarah. And by engaging in this act of benevolence and generosity, she prays that she too will merit to bear a child. So what happens? What happens is that Bila bears children. And then Leah is very upset. So she gives Zilpah to Yaakov. And Zilpah bears children. And in the end, Leah starts bearing children again. She bears two sons, Yisachar and Zvulun, and a daughter named Dina. So in between her childbearing years, in between the first of her seven children, pardon me, the first four of her seven children, and then an interregnum after which she has another three children, in between, the in-between period, what is it called in the Torah? The Marsha says, if you look in Genesis 29, verse 35, you'll see the Torah describes it as, Vata'amod miledet. Vata'amod does not mean she stopped walking. It means her circumstances suddenly ground to a halt. Whatever was, now it wasn't. Leah wasn't getting pregnant anymore. She wasn't bearing children. She had four children in quick succession. She wasn't having children. The terminology used, the Talmud. The Marsha says, 
If Vatamod would mean she was walking and stopped, then it would say she was walking and stopped. It would say that she came, and then after saying she came, it would say she stopped walking. It would use the terminology of Vatovo, she arrived, because she didn't, probably didn't walk, it probably wasn't adjacent, there was a huge compound, the royal compound, it was probably a ride, but she came, and all of a sudden she stopped. She stopped, but it doesn't say she came and she stopped. It says Vatamod. And the Marshal reasons, based on the scriptural precedent of Genesis 29, that Vatamod means something changed in the circumstances. What could have changed in the circumstances? Let's think about it. What was it about the circumstances that encouraged Esther to continue to move forward? You know, we just talked about it. Because the Shekhinah was upon her. And so the Mashal reasons, the Gemara is saying, Omer Rebbe Levi, because it says, Vatamod b'chatzar beit ha-melech, because it says all of a sudden something changed, it means that when she came to Chatzar Beit HaMelech to the inner sanctum, which was the threshold into the antechamber before the actual throne room, so something caused the Shekhinah to depart. What could that possibly be? Why would the Shekhinah depart? Esther is such a righteous woman. She didn't do anything wrong. It's not fair. So the Marshal says, I believe he reasoned, it must be, it's because of the place. It's because of the environment, not because of Esther. Now this is not simple, because we find that Hashem's Shechina accompanies Moshe and Aaron in the, to the inner chamber of the Pharaoh, when in fact, we have archaeological evidence, and I posted it on Facebook as an advertisement for today's class, of an antechamber to one of the pharaoh's throne rooms, and guess what's in it? A hallway of idols, large idols. So it seems that in antiquity, and this is a practice that likely continued for many centuries, the outer area of the royal chamber itself was dedicated to religious statuettes or iconography. And therefore, the question becomes, Hashem went with Moshe Viaron right into the palace. That's what gave them the strength to do this. In fact, on the words, Bo el Paro, come to Paro, the famous question is asked, why doesn't it say, Lech, go to Paro? That's what it said the first time around, and the Zohar says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, come with me. Idarim darin. I will go with you into the innermost chambers, the most fearsome place for Moshe the Aaron to be. I, Hashem, the Shekhinah will go along. If the Shekhinah went with Moshe the Aaron, why would the Shekhinah depart from Esther? Because they're in a place of idols. Something here is not adding up. So Esther asks this very question. 
Omra, she said, Kaylee, Kaylee, my God, my God, twice. Kaylee, Kaylee, Loma Azavtoni, why have you abandoned me? It doesn't mean it has to stop walking necessarily. The way the Gemara understands this, something stopped. The Shekhinah stopped. And when the Shekhinah stopped and Esther lost her consciousness, she started to pray all over again. So what happened? I prayed for three days. I fasted. The Shekhinah came and now it stopped. Keili, Keili, Loma, Azavtoni. Why have you abandoned me? And Esther begins to make what we would call in the vernacular a cheshbon ha-nefesh. She begins to make what's called a self-reckoning. And the Gemara says that as she cried out, Keili, Keili, Loma, Zavtoni, she speaks, so to speak, to God. She says, Shema atodon al kamezid. Are you judging me for a shogik, for an accident? Like something I did on purpose? What does that mean? Interestingly, Rashi doesn't say a word about that. And on a circumstance under duress, like a circumstance of choice. Onus means under some kind of extenuating pressure. Rotson means willingly. Very strange statement the Gemara just made here. First of all, it's redundant. Esther essentially saying, I don't want to be here. You think I chose to do this? You know, God, I didn't want to do this. Why did she repeat it twice? And if you look at the words carefully, it's not actually the same thing. Shogig is an accident, Mazid is premeditated. An accident. Versus premeditated means the person said, I didn't mean to pull the trigger. I, I was trying to open the gun and it went off. It's an accident. You can't convict me for murder. I didn't, I didn't want to do this. It was an accident. Mazed means, yeah, I pulled the trigger. What do you think is going to happen? I, I didn't care. I was angry. I pulled the trigger. That's a world of difference between an accident or a willful act. Onus Kirotzen is not about an accident. An onus would mean somebody would pull the trigger under duress. I didn't want to. I was forced to. Well, you still chose to do it. I chose not, not by my own free will. I did it. I, I, I did it because I was forced to. So it's not the same thing. A shogig is not an onus. An onus means I chose to do this, but I did it under duress. A shogig means I didn't mean to do it at all. Interestingly, when it comes to Ones Kerotzon, here Rashi does say something. Rashi says, Al Ones, I'm coming to him. I'm submitting to Achashverosh. You know what that means. Achashverosh is a man with a lot of testosterone. Remember, he had a beauty pageant to find the right queen. We know the meaning of Esther coming on her own accord. She's essentially, from this point and onward, not under duress, not forced, but she's chosen. Chosen to be with Achashverosh. 
We learned about this before. So she says, I'm coming in onus. I'm coming under duress. Onusu. Ah, she says, it's, it's, it's just, this is under pressure. I was forced into this. I didn't want this. I didn't choose this. Which incidentally seems to contradict some of what we learned in previous episodes of this very Gemara. So this has to be understood. It really, really needs to be clarified. The Maharsha says that Esther had never been in this place before. Ahasuerus didn't call for his women in the throne room. In fact, it is a law. It's illegal to enter the throne room without being called for. That was Persian law. That's why Esther didn't want to go. She says, I had never been called. She hadn't been called altogether, and it was law that the king was under, if you will, duress, to obey the law that if somebody enters the throne room, the respect of the office is such that if somebody enters the throne room uninvited, he or she forfeits their life. And Esther had never been called to the throne room. She'd been called to the dining room. She'd been called to the bedroom. She had not been called to the throne room. We don't know or hear of Esther being involved, at least heretofore, in the governance of the provinces that were ruled by Ahasuerus. So she didn't know what was there. She'd never been in that part of the palace. And there's only one way in. Only one way in. There aren't multiple doors. There aren't multiple entrances. You have to pass through this chamber of idols before you enter into the inner sanctum of the king's throne room. And so Esther suddenly finds herself in a house of idolatries, a house of horror. So Marsha says, so what's wrong? What? God is not where idols are? The Shekhinah can't be? We know the Shekhinah is there. What's the problem? Marsha says something very interesting. There is a prohibition in the Torah, which is found in the beginning of the 19th chapter of Leviticus, that says, Altifnu el elilim. Do not turn to foreign deities. Don't turn to foreign deities. It doesn't say only don't worship foreign deities. Don't accept foreign deities upon yourself as a god. Don't turn to foreign deities. Which means, by the way, that we are not permitted to gaze upon idols. Even if we're just visiting. A house of idolatry is verboten for a Jew to enter. We don't gaze upon the idol we don't engage with the idol or idolatrous practice. Al-tifnu means don't turn there. So Esther says, I, I didn't mean to come into this room. I chanced on this room. I didn't want to be here. Are you holding me responsible for violating Elilim? That I turned to Elilim? That I entered into a chamber of idolatry? I didn't mean to. And that, says the Marsha, is the meaning of the first statement that Esther made. Shema atadon al-shegi kemezid. 
Amazed is a person who chose to look at the idols. I didn't choose to look at them. I didn't choose to engage with them. I didn't choose to be here, Esther says. I stumbled into this place. It's a mistake. Yes, I intended to come to the king. No, I had no clue where I was going. I would have closed my eyes. I would have done something. I, all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by idols. So Esther's praying. She says, the Shema is it's as if, this is not a question of being the Shechina, being in the place of idols. It's a question of when the Shechina is with you, you need to be 100% mindful of the Shechina. If you are looking elsewhere or phased by something else, you cannot be a receptacle to the Shechina. Such is the nature of having Ruach HaKodesh. So having Ruach HaKodesh necessarily means that Esther has to be 100% focused on Ruach HaKodesh. And she was until she came in upon this room filled with enormous idols and she was startled. And then the Shekhinah left her. So she begins to pray. She says, I didn't mean to turn to them. It, it, it was an accident. I, I stumbled into a room. So I'm only human. That wasn't a mindful, intentful thing. And that's why she says, Shogig, a mistake, an accident, Kemezid. And then Esther thought, maybe it's not Maybe it's not because I stumbled into a place of idolatry and looked at the idols. Maybe it's because of where I'm about to go. As in, how could the Shechina be with a Jewish woman who's about to submit herself in a very intimate way to this non-Jewish king? How could the Shechina be with her? So Esther says, I don't want to do this. I don't want this. You know that. Now it's interesting to note that according to some of the commentaries, for example, the Sif Sechachavim, he says that we don't have to remove the word Vatamod from its literal meaning the way the Marsha does. He says Vatamod could mean she actually did stop. It could mean that. But what bothered Reb Levi is why did she stop? You're on a mission. You're not here to take prisoners. You know exactly where you're going. What is she stopping for all of a sudden? How, how could that be helpful? So the Sisrecham reasons, if she stopped, she stopped for a good reason. Something was enabling her to go, and all of a sudden, that which gave her the courage and the gumption to go forward wasn't there anymore. So she stopped. She said, I'm not going myself. <laughs> I'm not going without the Shechina. So either way we want to understand the word, whether it's like Vatamod Miledet, or whether we want to understand it as Vatamod, she literally stopped, but because the force of spirit that had accompanied her suddenly dissipated, and she felt powerless, and she couldn't move forward, she couldn't put one foot in front of the other, the important message here is that the Shechina departed from, from Esther. At this moment, the zero moment, this moment before she's about to do the most frightening thing, her life literally is flashing before her eyes, and God abandons her. Seriously? God abandons her in this moment? Kaylee, Kaylee, she cries, God, come on! How could you forsake me now? I came this far. Now you're going to abandon me? I didn't mean to come into this place. I don't want to go where I'm going. The Masha asks a very important question. 
a very important question about this notion of Esther not wanting to go where she's going. He says, earlier we said, Kashar avadati avadati, Esther herself reasoned, I'm lost. I'm lost. There's no hope for me. Why, why is there no hope for me? There's no hope for me because I'm, now I'm doing this for my own volition. And now you're telling me it's an onus? So there's a very interesting Maharik. Rashash sends us off to a Maharik to answer this question. Maharik was one of the great, Yosef Korbil, one of the great Rishonim, who wrote, or at least we have, an entire volume of responsa from him. So the Maharik says that what would happen in the case of a woman who submitted herself to a would-be rapist because he threatened that if she would not submit, he would kill her children. What's the question? So I'll, ex- I'll explain this to you. According to Halacha, if a woman chooses to have an extramarital affair, an extramarital intimacy, God forbid, she is no longer permitted to live with her husband. They have to get divorced. By the way, she's not really permitted to live with this other person either. Echad l'ba'al, echad One of the most not sure the right word to use for it, maybe the saddest, gut-wrenching moments I ever experienced was in a late night counseling a couple who I didn't know from another congregation, another part of the city, and they came to see me only because they knew I didn't know them. But I guess they had listened to some of my classes and I don't even remember the details. It's a long, long time ago. And they shared with me the saddest, most sordid, twisted story I had probably ever heard. In short, the husband, a young man, was stricken with the big C. And the chemotherapy literally ate him up from inside. It's an awful, awful situation. Literally a shadow of himself. And he had a really good friend. And the really good friend was very loyal and he came over and he took care of him. And the sick man's wife was, was very heartbroken. She was struggling very, very, in a very serious way. And this friend became a support system for his friend and for his friend's wife. But tragically, and who am I to judge anybody? They ended up becoming too close the wife of the sick man and the best friend, and it went too far, unfortunately. And this couple came to me, and the husband is sobbing. He's regained his health, and now he knows the story. And the woman is sobbing. And she says, you, you, don't, you can't judge me. You don't know what kind of pressure I was under. I just needed some, I needed some love. I needed some friendship. I felt so alone. I, and he says to me, I forgive her. I understand. It was so awful. I was almost dead. And they're asking me, Shiloh, according to the halacha, are they permitted to continue now their married life? I started to cry. It was such a, was such a, a gut-wrenching experience. I said, I, I can't tell you something other than the Shulchan Aruch. I said, I said to the husband, do you believe that your wife did this? She says, of course I do. <laughs> my, my, my best friend told me. We, I, she, 
it's happened multiple times. I mean, my wife said, said if she says she did it, then you believe your best friend. I don't know what to tell you. The halacha says that you can't be together anymore. And they started to sob. And I cried with them. And I didn't have... I, I, I was, it was an awful moment. And then the woman says to me, you mean I have to get divorced? That is the halacha. So she says, so could I at least marry the best friend? I said, not be halacha. Anyway, it was, a, it was an awful night and something I'll never forget. But the reason I'm sharing the story with you is to give you a real-life example of how an extramarital affair, and I'm not judging anybody, but objectively speaking, it can't be right, will actually prohibit the couple from continuing to live together as husband and wife. Now, what if there would be a different scenario? What if this woman was, Rahman al-Tzlan, was raped at gunpoint, at knife point, she was raped. So what's the halacha? Could she continue to live with her husband? If he's not a Kohen, the answer is 100% yes. So the Maharik gets this terrible shaila, terrible shaila. And the terrible shaila is that there was a case where a woman, a family was taken captive and the woman was threatened that her children would be killed before her eyes if she did not submit herself. Faced by an impossible choice, she couldn't, she couldn't, so to speak, stand in the way. She couldn't allow her children to be killed. Now the Shaila was sent to the Maharik. She willingly submitted herself. Now the couple, the family is freed. Can she go back to living with her husband? So the Maharik deals with this Shaila. And he says, on one hand, the woman did not do an Aveda. That's not an affair. That's not even under a bad circumstance. That's, that's the most awful kind of situation. That, there's no Aveda. In fact, mitzvah asa, he says. She did a mitzvah. She saved the life of her family. However, the Marik says, it doesn't change the halacha. The fact remains that she did submit herself willingly. So the halacha remains a halacha. The couple can't live together anymore. Is she a sinner? She's a saint. And it's a tragic situation. So the Rashash uses this Marik to answer the question of the Mashar. He says, Esther did the greatest mitzvah of all time. Esther saved the Jewish nation. But the halacha about her and Mordechai doesn't change. Her and Mordechai can still never be together again. Esther's hope, she was holding out for this hope. Achashverosh would get tired of her. He'd somehow let her go. Things would change and she'd go back to living her Jewish life. They'd leave Persia. They'd move to Israel. They'd start a new life together. And that would be the end of that. Once this event happens, that can never take place. And it never does. Esther never leaves the palace. She remains in Persia. When Mordechai moves to Eretz Yisrael, Esther remains in Persia. And there she remains till the end of her life to the best of her knowledge. In fact, we believe that both Mordechai and Esther are buried together outside the ruins of the city of Susa, which we believe is Shushan. If we are to assume that that tomb, which you can see on, online pictures and videos of it in Iran, is actually the tomb of Mordechai and Esther, we have no reason to assume not. 
in all likelihood that is actually the tomb of Mordechai and Esther. So they were buried together, but they never again lived together. In the Divrei Shaul, a sefer which he frames it a little bit differently. He says this, he says, the halacha cannot base itself on feelings, on intentions that can't be seen. Mm-hmm. As per the words of the Shulchan Aruch, that a day in a bezdin can only judge by virtue of ra'ot enehem. Well, what they see. Ein ledayan ela ma she'enav ra'ot. The judge has to base things on what the actual evidence. The fact that Mordechai knew the truth. The fact that he was a Novi and she's a Novi. He reads into her heart and he knows that it's really and truly. That, that doesn't take away from the actual halacha. Here's a case in point. So there's this story. There was a man who disappeared. And he, was, he never came home. And his wife was left alone. And at some point she wanted to try to make a life for herself. She was called an aguna, in a stuck situation. She can't remarry because we don't have a corpse. We don't have a divorce. And she went to all the big rabbanim to try to find a heter, try to find some kind of leniency to allow her to go on living life. The Alter Rebbe said, Al we don't have the ability to, 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 to legislate this. Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Barditchev, who met this woman, wrote a letter to the Alter Rebbe. I know that he's dead, said Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. And he likes the Alter Rebbe, you know that she's dead. So how could we not permit her to go on and live a normal life? And the Alter Rebbe said, that The Torah is not ruled by virtue of Ruach HaKodesh. The Torah has to be ruled by the evidence at hand. The court system cannot function by spiritual clairvoyance. It has to function with hard evidence. And there is no hard evidence for that. So it's true that deep down Esther was oinus, but that's underneath the surface. On the facade, on the face of things, Esther is willingly going to Achashverosh. That's why she says, Kasher avadati avadati, she knew the halacha. She knew that there was no way she could prove her intention. The fact is, she picked herself up and went without being called. Kasher avadati avadati. Now Esther's talking to Hashem. Hashem knows, Hashem knows what's in her heart. Esther speaks to her, says, What are you abandoning me for? What did I do wrong? You know I don't want to be here. You know that this is an oinus. I'm under the greatest of the rest. Mordechai told me I need to do this. You know that the lives of the entire nation of Israel lie in balance now. And Mordechai told me this is the right thing to do. The same Rebbe, the same Mordechai that Esther faithfully listened to his instructions. And because of this, according to the Alkabats, merited to receive this divine intervention, if you will. Or this arrival of this divine, this Shechina, this, this, this Ruach HaKadosh, this Holy Spirit, this clairvoyance and prophecy. Because she listened to Mordechai, she said, I'm listening to Mordechai. I don't want to do this. You know, God, that I am doing this under duress, not Biratzon. So this is the way we can answer and understand the distinction that's drawn between what we learned earlier and what we're learning now. Before we proceed and talk about Esther's actual prayer, I want, to, I want to add two little nuances, two little fascinating nuances. 
So the first is with regard to the notion of what was wrong when she stumbled into a chamber of enormous idols. So, so far we've explained it because Esther lost her focus on the Shechina, paid attention. The idea of Altifnu, the being in this, in this environment. In the Sefer L'Shmoya Belimudim, he says that Esther, who at this point is like the representation of the entire nation of Israel, she's coming on behalf of the nation. By her being in a place like that and being startled and noticing these things, that brings to mind the notion of the Jewish people living in Shushan's prostrating themselves before Haman, who wears a large religious icon around his neck or has it emblazoned on his clothes. And when they prostrate themselves before Haman, the intention is that they are submitting to the idol he wears and purports to represent. In other words the sin of the Jewish people suddenly resonated with great force. And the negative energy from bringing to mind the sin of the Jewish people that had brought all of this about now suddenly robbed Esther of the Shekhinah, of that prophecy, of that, the force of that Holy Spirit. In the Sefer Pedus Yaakov, he says, he takes this idea further. He says, when Esther stumbled into that chamber of horrors, it brought to mind the fact that the Jewish people had previously, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, publicly prostrated themselves before an idol of gold that he created in his own effigy. This is when those three brave boys were thrown into the fiery furnace. Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah. And they saved the Jewish nation because the rest of the Jewish nation prostrates themselves. And the Medrash tells us that that is where the seeds of the destruction, the planned annihilation of the Jewish people were first planted. And now all of a sudden, Esther being in this place and startled seeing these giant idols, which didn't actually bow, but she was startled by them. Now, as if it brings to mind the sin of the Jewish people going back decades. The Pedus Yankiv comes along and, and he interprets the prayer of Esther along these words. He says, why did Esther say, Keli, Keli? Now to be sure, we take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, Keli, Keli, Lomaz of Tani. Why is she saying, Keli, Keli? These are not her words. Says, the, says Rashi, B'mizmer ayela sashachar hu. This is found in the Mizmar called Ayala Tashachar, the morning star, which is a euphemism that our sages use to refer to the 22nd Psalm. The Medrash Shochar Tov, also known as Medrash Tilim, states that David Amelach, King David, composed Psalm 22 on behalf of Esther with prophetic clairvoyance, with a holy spirit of intuition. So Esther was following the words that David Amelach had already essentially written. The Tilim, Mizmach of Beis, that people had been reciting ever since the days of David Melech. But the Pedus Yaakov says that even though, on a literal level, as Rashi says, she was repeating words of Tehillim that were prophetically written for her at this moment, so she said, Keli, Keli, he says it's precise. Keli, Keli, Loma Azaftani, she says this refers to the notion of the Jewish people who said twice, Keli, my God. 
When they went through the Reed Sea, they said, Zekeli, this is my God. When they received the Torah, they said, Keli, this is my God at Sinai. They saw Hashem. They saw God. When the Jewish people were walking through the Reed Sea, do you know there was a creep named Micha who was holding an idol and singing songs of religious devotion to his idol as he walked through the Reed Sea? Can you imagine? And he might then have been the only one. And yet, despite the fact that this was this incredible moment of divine revelation, which brought the people to a profusion of spiritual expression in the songful phraseology of, of, of Az Yashir. Nonetheless, people, there were still some people worshipping idols, and Hashem forgave them. It doesn't say the walls of water came crashing down. The Jewish people were at Har Sinai, received mass personal revelation, and a short 40 days later built a golden calf and said, this is our God. Esther said, did the Jewish people get destroyed? Are there no more Jewish people after that? So if we could survive, Kaylee, Kaylee, we've been here already. We've been here, says the Pudus Yaakov. Esther is pleading on behalf of the Jewish people. She senses that the Shekhinah is leaving her not because of her personal iniquity or shortcoming, but because of what she represents and is brought to mind. It's like this fusion of different things happening, the perfect storm. Esther walks in and she's startled by idols and the idols, it's for Esther, which cause her to lose her focus, ultimately reflect badly on the nation she represents right now, bringing to mind their sins. And the Shekhinah all of a sudden is gone. And Esther says, Kaylee, Kaylee, you didn't, you didn't abandon them when they walked to the Reed Sea, even though they were worshipping idols. You didn't abandon them when they worshipped the golden calf after having seen God. Now you're going to abandon? Now you're going to leave me? It's not really about Esther. As Neil Armstrong said, one tiny step for a man, one giant step for mankind, Today, he'd probably be tarred and feathered for saying for man. He would probably have to say for a person. But the point is <laughs> that our prime minister would say peoplehood or something silly like that. Personhood. The point is, though, that sometimes an individual can represent far more than the sum of his own parts. And that's Esther at this point. She's here representing the entirety of the nation of Am Yisrael. She cries out to Hashem and she says, Please come home. Please bring me back your Shechina. I can't do this, so to speak, without you. Now, the Gemara says that the word Vatamod, as we say, the Marsha interprets it as a cessation. The Shechina was interrupted, the broadcast was interrupted. According to the Sifzichacham, she stopped, literally, because the broadcast had been interrupted. But it's very interesting to note that the Akabats, the Manas Alevi, also draws attention to the fact that Vatamod can be linked to the description of Pinchas when he was in very swift motion, saving the Jewish people from the grave sins of iniquity. The iniquity of idolatry and adultery, the debauchery of the prince of the tribe of Shimon, Zimri ben Solo, who is in the midst of copulating with a princess 
a royal princess of the land of Midian, Cosby Basur, and Pinchas rushes forward and he carries out an act of zealotry. When David Amelech in Psalm 106 speaks of this, he says, Vayamod Pinchas Vayipalo. He stopped and prayed. But when you learn the Gemara, you realize that Pinchas didn't have a split second. He was at exactly the right time, the right moment. And as the Talmud says, many miracles happened that day. And that's why it says if you, if you see Pinchas in your dream, miracles will happen, just as the Gemara Brachas. So the question becomes, why does it say Vayamod? And it says, Vayamod Pinchas Vayipalal. The word Vayamod is actually a word we say, Ein Amida El Pinchas was praying, so it says he stopped. So maybe she didn't stop. Maybe she kept walking. According to the Alkabats, it doesn't matter if she kept walking or not. The point is, she was praying at this, at this moment. Now she started to pray. She wasn't just focused on putting one foot in front of the other. Now she is in deep prayer to Hashem. Maybe her gait slowed down. Maybe she even stopped. I don't know. The point, though, is, Vatamod, she's praying. Why is she praying? She's praying because the Shekhinah left her, says Ablevi. Why did the Shekhinah leave her? The Shekhinah left her because, as we said, of the circumstances that she had stumbled into. And she cries out to Hashem, it's not my fault. I didn't mean this. I didn't want this. You need to come home. You need to come back to me. Then the Gemara reconsiders. So one second, are you sure it's because she stumbled into that place in this zero moment that suddenly the Shekhinah left her? Oishema, maybe al shekorosiv kelev, because she's called him a dog. Shenemar, because it says in the very same psalm, Hatzila mecherev nafshi, save me from the sword directed against my life, meyad kelev yichidosi, before that focus, that singular dog who's out to get me. And then, Chazra, suddenly the prayer switches. She's no longer using the euphemism of dog. Now she's using the euphemism of lion. Chazra v'korase arye. Then later she goes back to save me from the lion. Shanema, as it says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. Rashi says, It's in the very same psalm. So what's going on over here? What would be the sin? I understand why the Shekhinah would abandon her. She startled, she turned to the idols, she didn't know, it was an accident. I, I, I get that. I get this idea of it brought to mind the Jewish people's sins. She called him a dog, called him a lion. What's the difference? What is going on over here? On the surface, this Gemara is almost like enough to explode your head. <laughs> what in heaven did she do wrong? Such a righteous woman in the midst of the supreme act of Mesiras Nefesh, risking her very life with no guarantee whatsoever that she'll be successful. Like the loyal chassid who simply follows instructions after praying and fasting for three days with perfect faith, receiving the Shechina itself and radiant and an otherworldly energy and suddenly, boom, it goes dark. Because she said, dog, it's not lion. What does that mean? I have a lot of trouble with this. Really, really doesn't, it's very hard to understand this. So the Manas Halevi says this. 
And I want to preface, before I tell you the words of the Manas HaLevi, I have to tell you that it's at, it's at moments like this when we have to bring to mind the idea that HaKadosh Baruch Hu medaktik al-tzaddikim that God makes the most precise and exacting demands of tzaddikim that are far beyond what we could possibly imagine. This is a very, very exact kind of form of Avedus Hashem. The tzaddik is held responsible for things that we can't even imagine. In the metaphor that I shared with you in one of the classes recently, you have a diamond that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars or a diamond that's worth millions of dollars, and there are such diamonds. The slightest imperfection causes it to plunge in value. It could be $100,000 cheaper because of the slightest imperfection. Whereas the kind of diamonds that regular people will buy for, for $3,000, $2,000, $4,000, that imperfection is not even on the scale, so to speak. It's not even looked for. It's not even noticed. It's not even an issue. The gross discoloration, that causes it to go. So instead of selling for, 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 for $3,000, now it's going to sell for $2,800. You understand what I'm saying? The stakes are much, much higher. When you're dealing with something which is of tremendous, tremendous power, the slightest move results in an enormous difference. Think of rocket science. A nanosecond can spell the difference between life and death. When we are doing our daily affairs, a nanosecond, 10 seconds doesn't make a difference. It's customary for some to touch their tefillin at the end of the Uvalotzion prayer. And the origin of that touching the tefillin on the words, so that we will not have empty lives, we'll have exalted lives. The origin, as the Rebbe once shared the story, is that there was once a tzaddik who was davening and he was so focused on the words, that he forgot about his tefillin, he forgot he was wearing tefillin. And because of this, when he comes to heaven, he gets stuck. He can't go to his eternal reward because something's missing. Because he didn't daven with the fullest devotion. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? If I would not think about my tefillin, but think about leman, lenigalarik, that would be, I, I would get a mitzvah. Because <laughs> I'm not a tzaddik. It's not even in our, in our field of vision. So there was a tiny imperfection. What was the imperfection? The Manas Halevi says that when Esther was praying that Hashem saved her from Achashverosh, she called him a dog. Now, I don't mean to offend any of you canine lovers, but even in the vernacular in English, when you call somebody a dog, it's not a compliment. When you call them a lion, it usually is. A lion means that they are fearless. A lion means they have courage. Think of Richard the Lion-hearted. Lion is a... We, we lionize. We don't dogify. When people say, that guy's a dog, it's, a, it's an insult. That's just the way it is. Let's not get emotional about this. I'm not insulting your dog. I'm telling you that the reality is when you call a person a dog, it's not a compliment. At least it wasn't. So what's wrong with that? So the Manas Alevi says, there's a Medrash that talks about Moshe Rabbeinu and his interactions with the cruel vicious, mass-murdering king of Egypt, Pharaoh, 
and this sadistic, disgusting, despicable individual who worshipped himself. And Moshe Rabbeinu still has to speak respectively. Mipnei kovoid hamalchos. He watches his words because there's something about monarchy. Something about monarchy. It reflects a higher divine concept. We say the notion of monarchy and majesty of royalty is a reflection of the way things are on high and it's, it's a necessity for us to respect royalty. This is a king who has just signed or allowed the order to be signed to mass murder every Jew in the world. But you still can't call him a dog. If he's the king, he's the king. So Esther is held accountable. She says, Hatsileni, save me. She says, Mikelevichidasi for this dog. And then she says, I shouldn't call him a dog. A lion. And the Shrina comes back. <laughs> if you have a hard time wrapping your head around this, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's very difficult to understand the, the sin, if you will, or the inappropriateness, the iniquity of Esther. Seriously? It's it, it really like on a different level of precision. The point, of course, is that the prayer has to be precise and exact, and etiquette for the greatest of tzaddikim and sitkanias is followed to the nth degree. So that's the way we understand the Gemara from the Monas HaLevi. I do want to, however, share with you the words of the Marsha. The Marsha has a totally different take on this. The Marsha says that Esther was initially praying to be saved from Haman. She says, metaphorically, Haman was the dog and Achashverosh was the lion. And that's why it says, Miyad Kelev Yechidasi, from the hand, because Haman is a minister who can do bad things, but he doesn't bark orders. The orders come, Hatsileni mi pi in the mouth of the lion, the king gives orders. Haman can make things happen. Achashverosh gives the orders. Miyad and mi pi, from the hand and from the mouth. The Marsha cannot accept the notion that the Manus Alevi advances. So you call Achashverosh a dog. So for this, the prayers aren't accepted. For this, she loses the Shekhinah. Marsha says, I can't accept it. So therefore, Marsha says that the prayer of Esther was found faulty because Esther thought that Achashverosh was a friend. He's, he's not a bad guy. He's still my husband. It's, it's Haman. It's, he's the evil bad man. And Achashverosh is going to listen to me. I just, have to, I just have to get through that door and I'll get him to deal with the dog. And that's why she didn't pray hard enough. All she was praying for was to get through the door. And she figured after that, I, I got it covered. That's a problem. The truth is, nothing was a shoo-in. And she made an epic miscalculation, an epic error. The truth is that Achashverosh hated the Jewish people more than Haman, as we learned previously, but Esther didn't know this. And it was Achashverosh who said to Haman, I have a Jewish problem. But Achashverosh could never bring to his mouth to say genocide, annihilation. He couldn't think in those terms. He just hated them. 
It was the crafty, scheming, vicious Haman who could come up with this terminology, as we learned in the previous episode. So now that Esther miscalculates, and she davened, but she didn't daven with as much fervor because she thought, I got this covered. And the Shekhinah leaves her, as if to indicate to her, you need to pray right. You're walking into that room. It's not a shoo-in. He could kill you in a moment. Kill his first wife. He's more than happy to allow the annihilation of the Jewish people. Pray to be saved from the lion, not the dog. In the words of the Marshal, because she was davening to be saved from Haman the dog, so therefore, she didn't pray with enough entreaty, with enough force. She didn't plead before Hashem with enough energy. She said, my enemy is in the image of a dog. It's a Haman. A dog who's been given all of a sudden great power. Like every dog has his day. This dog has his day, but he's still a dog. He's just Achashverosh's stooge, he's Achashverosh's poodle. And Achashverosh can rein in his poodle in a moment's notice. He can't really do anything. But that was a big mistake. It's a big mistake because it all came from Achashverosh. It's just that Haman had chutzpah. He had the ability to think and talk outside the box. He could imagine things Achashverosh is afraid to think of. But as far as hatred was concerned, we learned earlier, Achashverosh was an anti-Semite, not no less, but even more than Haman. And he's, he's like a lion, the fearsome lion, the lion king of the jungle. Nobody can stop him. He can do as he pleases. And now Esther begins to pray. Not just about the dog. Now she realizes it's a lot scarier than I thought. I'm going into the lion's den. Literally, I'm going to stand before a man who would kill me in a heartbeat if he knew I was Jewish. And I'm going to plead for my people. I'm going to stand in front of a man who rejoices in the edict of annihilation. And I'm going to stand in front of him and try to turn things inside out. Oh, do I need help? And she began to pray. And because she began to pray this way, the Shekhinah returned. So now she has what you would call, I suppose according to the Marsha, a higher level of Shekhinah, a more powerful level of Shekhinah, because the Shekhinah that came to her came as a result of her devotion. And it came to her as a result, ultimately, of her prayers. Now, there is a question that's asked. This is like much later on in the verse. That's, that's the first is in the beginning of the verse, Kaili, Kaili. And the verse, the second verse, and, and the business of the dog and the lion is, 20, is, is the 31st verse. So, actually, they say Esther didn't exactly pray this chapter of Tillam in perfect order. And she originally, this is, this is the follow-up prayer. So, it's, it's mentioning the dog and the lion reflecting the earlier prayers that she had offered. This is the prayers that she offered during those three days. At any rate, I think now we can say this really makes sense to us. And before we go on, let me share with you that the Yaivitz says in the name of his father that if Esther looked at Achashverosh just as a dog, so then she wasn't under duress. 
<laughs> this is not exactly on a pshat level, but listen to this. There's a fascinating halacha, which is conveyed to us on the pages of the Gemara and Masechet Bava Metziah. On page 93, it's a chapter of Gemara that speaks about shomrim, about watch person, somebody who's taken responsibility. So a shepherd is a form of a shomer. If the shepherd isn't being paid, he's doing you a favor, he's just watching your sheep. So if an animal comes and gobbles up the sheep, what are you going to do? But if he's being paid, and he could have stopped, he could have fought. So it says like this. If a wild dog comes and attacks the sheep, you take your cudgel and you beat off the wild dog. You fight with the coyote. But if it's a lion, no, go fight with a lion. Then it's all done. So the Yaivet says, if you tell me he's a dog, a dog you fight off. You didn't have to do this. When Esther says, no, 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 it's not a dog. It's a lion. Hashem says, you're right. It's a lion. You are under duress. And now that you fully understand how much under duress you are, now the Shekhinah comes back. Anyway, it's like a, a side commentary, if you will. Not pshat, but sweet. So what happened? What happened? In the, in the Medrash, there's a whole fascinating story of seven antechambers and that it was a miracle that she made it to the first three because they could have stopped her. Now she's in the fourth antechamber, which is in between. The first three have guards, the next three have guards. And she stops in the middle because the first three can't do anything. She passed the jurisdiction. They somehow were sleeping at the switches. And they let her walk right through. They were supposed to stop her. They can't apprehend her because she's no longer in their jurisdiction. You could say like the outer chamber is maybe provincial governance. That's the provincial police. And then the inner chamber is federal different jurisdiction so the soldiers on the inside they can't arrest her because because she's not in the, she's in a no person's land a no, a no jurisdiction in the in-between chamber maybe it was a religious chamber so there was no jurisdiction for law enforcement there so what happens is she stops they can't get her the police outside are trying to get her and she stops and prays and Hashem gives it a curve anyway this, the Gemara doesn't talk about this so she manages to make it through. She breaks through these impenetrable lines of defense. Zero hour arrives. She enters the throne room. She enters the throne room. The Gemara says, let's go back to the Megillah. Vayihi kira'is ha-melech. And so, it comes when the king sees as Esther Hamalka, the moment he lays eyes on her, their eyes lock. Amar Rabbi Yechonah, Rabbi says this was no simple meeting. This zero hour that could have spelled life or death, quite literally, for Esther, she was suddenly buoyed not only by the Shekhinah, but three angels. Amar Rabbi Yechonah, three angels suddenly came, three forces, angelic forces suddenly came. To a sister. At that moment. One lifted her neck, her posture. Because she was walking like this. Heartbroken, crushed. And the Malach forced her to walk erect and upright. Proud, regal, like a queen. Meeting Ahasuerus' stare. Looking right into him. 
Va'echad, and one, Shanim Shechut Shal Chesed who proverbially wrapped her in a yarn of kindness. That means really a chutzal chesed could perhaps best be translated as a. Is it translated here? Give her charm. A, she has this yarn of charm about her. It's a, it's a euphemism. A chut, literally a string of chesed. So she was charming. She suddenly had this allure. She looked desirable, radiant, incredibly charismatic at that moment. It's a charismatic moment. She was touched by this malach and electrified with this, with this energy. One enabled that scepter to suddenly magically grow because until the king extends the scepter, you may not proceed. And the goons are waiting to take you down. And they were waiting. And the moment that door opened, somebody entered uninvited. They stepped forward and they were about to kill the intruder. And suddenly, the scepter was extended. And that saved Esther's life. So, so why did she need these angels? What was going on over here? What's with these angels? So first of all, I found in the Mamloyas very interestingly that there's a, a manuscript from the Rambam, apparently, or a Pirish, which is Miyuchas. We believe that it was authored by the Rambam, who says that the names of these three angels are Chazdiel, the angel of kindness, Rachmiel, the angel of mercy, and Chaniel, the angel of grace. <laughs> I don't know what you can do with that information, but it's interesting. So we have names for the angels too. Now, the Sefer Shalom Esther, which is a commentary of the Megillah, incidentally says that the Kirois HaMelechas Esther really has to be understood on multiple levels. He says Kirois HaMelech doesn't just mean when the king saw her. First, the real king saw her. When Malkish Shalom, when Hashem saw how Esther was in this terrible circumstance, how she was so broken because she lost that force of spirit. And she's pleading to Hashem, an orphan girl who now has a crushed and broken heart, has suffered so much and done it with a smile. This brought grace or made her charming in Hashem's eyes. And Hashem gave her that charm. He blessed her with that charm. And that charm saved her from the hands of those who would have taken her life. The Marsha has a fascinating exposition of this. He says, first of all, the Sif Sechom asks a question. He says, doesn't it say that Esther always had a chutzel chesed, was always charming, always had grace about her? So the Sif Sechom says, yes, she always had grace for a commoner. But to attract the king's attention, she needed a whole different level of grace. And that was the special grace that she received from on high. Now, why'd she have to lift her head up? The Binyo says that if her head is down, she can't see the king. She won't look like a queen. She needs to project confidence. She needs to project, project royalty. 
walk presidentially, to carry herself like the queen of Persia. He says, the queen wears two articles of clothing that a commoner may not wear. You can see this in the Egyptian mummies from the time. I posted one on Facebook. One is a, th a crown, and the other is called it a vid, a chain of office. If Esther's head is bent, you can't see the crown in its glory, and you can't see that necklace, that chain of office. So the malach picked her posture up. Her crown was evident, as was her chain of office now. And that kept the goons at bay because they saw it was the queen. Persian law says, you enter this room without permission, you're dead. But Persian law does not include the queen of Persia in its sights. Ahasuerus could have done as he pleased. But by law, the fact that she's the queen exempts her. So she had to look like the queen. And the signs of her royalty had to be evident immediately. The Malach picks her head up, keeps the enemies at bay. It says the armies of Haman were after her, trying to stop this meeting. Everybody's kept at bay. Achashverosh looks at her, doesn't want to look at her. It says he turns his face away. A Malach slaps his face. He lifts his eyes. He's startled. And Esther's radiant. She has this incredible charisma. He's never seen a woman like this in his life. He's never seen Esther look like this. And he's bewitched. And he's befuddled. And Hashem makes a miracle. And the scepter suddenly extends itself miraculously. The Marsha says that we actually see these three things alluded to in the verse itself. He says, number one, whenever it says that somebody has chen, that somebody has charisma, so the language always used is matzah, mitzias chen, to find favor. Esther herself says, imotzasi chen, if I have found favor. Moshe Rabbeinu says before God, imotzasi, if I find favor. It says, v'noach, matzah, he found favor in Hashem's eyes. Limtso chen be'inecha, to find favor in your eyes, says Avram, when he davens to Hashem. And here there's no finding. Here it says, when he sees the queen, Oimedes, she carried grace. She carried, doesn't say she found. So he says she carried, first of all, indicates the notion of nasa means to uplift. Somebody lifted her posture. She was downcast. Somebody lifted her. Nasa, she was lifted. And then furthermore, nasa can also come from the terminology of to wear. So she was dressed or robed now, not only in divine consciousness, which gave her confidence and courage, she was now robed in charisma, in radiance. And lastly, it says, Vatiga which she touched the edge, just the edge, she couldn't reach the rest, because it had miraculously extended just enough for Esther to touch the edge of the scepter. The Gemara now describes the proportions of this miracle. So what happened here? How did, how did that look? The Gemara says that when Esther now stepped forward, Vakama, how much did the scepter extend? Amar Rabbi Yirmiyah, Rabbi Yirmiyah said, Shte Amot, two Amot, and Amot is 18 inches. Two Amot, three feet it extended. 
Sorry. It was, it was two amot, which means the scepter was a three-foot piece. And now it suddenly grew to 12 amot. From two amot, it grew to 12 amot. And others say, it grew to 16 amot. <laughs> Serious. Others say, Al Esrim Va'arba. It grew to 24 Amot. Bimasnita Tana, in the Brisa we learned. Al Shishim, it turned 60 Amot. We find something similar with a miraculous extension, not of a scepter, but of a hand. In the hand of Pare to save Moshe Rabbeinu, that it also extended, Rashi says, it says, that she sent her arm forward, her arm extended miraculously so she could reach the wicker basket in which Moshe was placed. We find similarly in the teeth of the wicked, the it says in the book in the book of Tehillim, Shine Rishoyim Shibarta. This Pasuk in Tehillim speaks of the, the wicked giant. Og who came to harm the Jewish people. And over there, in the third Psalm, in the eighth verse, it says, Ki kisa eskol oiva, you smote all of my enemies, you crushed or broke the teeth of the wicked. What is this talking about? So Rashi says, the teeth of the wicked, Og Og, the king of Bashan. In the Gemara, Mesechet Brachot, in the final chapter on page 54, it says that Og came against the Jewish people. Okar, he uplifted, uprooted, Har, Bas Parsa, a mountain that was three farsangs wide. And he wanted to throw, to hurl this mountain upon the Jewish people and liberate them. And what did Hashem do? Nisan Aresha, he placed the mountain upon his head. God sent the tiniest little creatures. And as Og was coming towards the Jewish people, they were hard at work, these little ants, eating out the center of the mountain. And these billions and trillions of ants ate out the center of the mountain. They made a hole in the mountain. And so it fell through onto his neck, blinding him. He now tried to remove the mountain from his head. His teeth miraculously grew out like fangs, boring into the mountain on either side. And in this way, Moshe Rabbeinu eliminates Agmelech HaBashan. So Rashi is telling us, Don't say crush the teeth of the wicked, but extend the teeth of the wicked. From the words teeth, Shinei, plural, the shoyim of wicked, but it's talking about one person. Nafak lahaydrasha, we can learn that it was 60 amot. How do we know? The lichtev kra v'shein rasha. This is talking about one person. It should have said the tooth of a wicked. Ella, you added a yud to shinei. You added a yud to make tooth into, into teeth. Then for rasha, you added the word yud mem, rishoyim, to make plural. That gives you the numerical equivalent of 60. Yud is 10. Another Yud is 10. Mem is 40. 10, 10, and 40 is 60. That gives you the idea of 60. I can't tell you I exactly understand this and know what it means. We're talking about miraculous events. Is this a metaphor? Is this literal? Moi does not know. But this is what it is. I'm telling you what the Gemara says.
That's what the Gemara says. Of this we could be certain. That scepter miraculously extended and grew, saving Esther just in the nick of time, just in her moment of truth. So whether it grew 12 amot, or 10 amot actually, to be a sum total of 12, whether it grew 14 amot to be a sum total of 16, whether it grew 22 amot to be a total of 24, or whether it actually grew a sum total of 58 amot, I don't know. But the Gemara seems to show us different opinions, and maybe it represents different ideas. I don't know that either. But the bottom line is, that's the story of the salvation of Esther Hamalka. Now here's just an interesting thought. And the interesting thought is that when, when the hand of Basia extends miraculously, it's a positive thing. It saves Moshe. When the teeth of Achashverosh extend, it does in. It does the evildoer in. It crushes the evil. And maybe the reason we're bringing both of these different opinions is because this extending of the scepter was perhaps having a dual purpose. It was saving Esther's life. But as we're going to see, much, much more than saving Esther's life, this would eventually enable the evil to be eliminated. I didn't see that anywhere. Maybe it's not correct. I'm just, I'm telling you that this is, uh, you know, my own original thought. I'm telling you that it's original. You shouldn't think it might not be Torah. I want to make that disclaimer. But it seems to me that would be a reasonable way to approach this. And that's why we have two different verses in these two different kinds of contexts. Because only with both together can we appreciate the real profundity of this amazing miracle that saved Esther in her zero hour. And this, my dear friends, sets the stage for remarkable and incredible, amazing things to occur one after the other, even during exilic times. As we pray that Amir Tzashem, the Abishta, should help us, that not only we should merit the miracles that save us during exilic times, but we should be Zoycha Amir Tzashem, finally, to the great miracles of the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, Ubi Amenu, Amen. Thank you so much for joining. And if you aren't yet, please subscribe to my channel, youtube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. Make sure you enable notifications. And I look forward to us having the opportunity to meet and to study Torah together, to uplift us, ourselves, to transform the world around us, and as mentioned, to bring Geula Yeshua to all of us with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amenu, Amen. Thank you.